This is The Solution, a poem by Bertolt Brecht, written in 1953 and published in 1959, read by Derek Johnson. After the uprising of the 17th of June, the secretary of the Writers' Union had leaflets distributed on the Stalin Alley, stating that the people had forfeited the confidence of the government and could only win it back by increased work quotas. Would it not in that case be simpler for the government to dissolve the people and elect another? That was a Syrian revolutionary Dabka from 2011, a time when freedom seemed nearer. The Dabka had lyrics calling for the ouster of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, who nine years later is still holding power through brutality. I'm personally reminded of rallies outside the Russian embassy in Wellington, where young Syrian men took over the mic and performed this dabka along with various chants, including the slogan Ashab Yurid Iskot An Nizam, uh, or The People Want the Fall of Their Regime, a chant that crossed all borders during the Arab Spring. Kia ora comrades, and welcome to Where's My Jetpack, a politics and pop culture podcast with sci-fi and socialist leanings. I'm Annie White. And I'm Derek Johnson. This month, on March 15th, the ninth anniversary of the Syrian Revolution, we're talking to Joseph Dar, a Swiss Syrian socialist activist, academic, and founder of the blog Syria Freedom Forever. Joseph is part of the wartime and post-conflict in Syria project at the European University Institute Florence in Italy. He's the author of Hezbollah, Political Economy of the Party of God, which was released in 2016 by Pluto Press, and Syria After the Uprisings, The Political Economy of State Resilience, released in 2019 by Pluto Press and Haymarket. Uh, Welcome to the show, Joseph. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for coming on. So uh, you're involved in the recently formed Alliance of Middle East and North African Socialists. Can you describe how this came together and the work the group's done so far? Well, uh, initially, the, we started uh, Frida Afari and I, and I would like to, to salute Frida for her work. She's been the main architect and uh, motor and the alliance in her daily work uh, to push forward uh, this group of uh, people. Initially, it was only uh, gathering people from Iran and Syria, and after we we enlarged it to various uh, different uh, countries of the Middle East and North Africa. The, the objective with this, uh, with this group is to, to establish a form of network of uh, uh, socialist progressive, uh, wanted to give a particular international progressive analysis and outlook on the region through statements, articles, and other means such as, uh, as you might have seen, debates on Facebook, conferences on Facebook, uh, try to put people 
uh, in contact. With what is really important for us is exchange between socialists and progressives of the region in the diaspora and exile and with other uh, internationalists. We give also particular attention to you know, not only issues of uh, exploitation against uh, the, the capitalist state, but also against oppression regarding women's rights, minorities' rights, and how do we link it to the, the particular uh, political and economic system we live in. Yeah, and we've organized various conferences, live stream, the latest one being the uh, feminist dialogue between Iranian, Iraqi, Palestinian, Lebanese, Chilean women. So uh, we, we're a small network, but trying to do what we can to to give a particular internationalist and progressive uh, understanding of the region. All right, I've I've listened to uh, one of the live streams I was watching that. There was a lot of people on that. That was pretty well coordinated. Indeed. Uh, what are the uh, main things everyone needs to know about the Syrian revolution? Well, I think one of the most important things uh, people should know about the, the, the Syrian revolution process is to remember that it started uh, in the framework of the of other regional uprisings uh, in Tunis, Egypt, Libya, Bahrain, uh, etc., uh, with the same fundamental roots, objective roots, uh, meaning the absence of democracy, the absence of social justice with uh, blockage of the productive economic forces, uh, and the willingness also uh, for populist sovereignty against their despots, but also against all kinds of foreign interventions, whether regional and international. Another, I think, very important aspect is the strength and the deepness of uh, the popular movement in Syria, and the two, especially in the two first years of the uprising, remembering the coordination committees, the local councils, the youth organizations that came out, the various strikes that occurred on different occasions, civil actions. Uh, there were definitely, you know, uh, attempts of a situation of double power, meaning that uh, the state had disappeared from large areas and people self-organizing. So I think this is really important to remember, especially now uh, when we've only been hearing about Syria through war, conflict, extremism, etc. Now, what are uh, the most dangerous myths circulating about the Syrian revolution? What is interesting when we look at the different myths uh, circulating about the Syrian revolution, it's always, whether directly or indirectly, a vision from above. A vision from above, meaning that uh, people see not what is happening from below, from the uh, dynamics of the popular uprising, people self-organizing, but for example, uh, such as portraying the Syrian revolution as a conspiracy. Foreign powers controlling, you know, protesters, uh, they're pushing them to go in the streets and controlling the movement. Uh, this had been one of the main, uh, the most dangerous myth in terms of conspiracy. Also, uh, very much, very, very much linked most of the time to the a geopolitical uh, view of the war, only seeing uh, various regional international powers struggling against each other. Uh, one of the most uh, famous. Uh, example of this vision of saying it's a geopolitical war only is saying that uh, it's an issue of uh, oleoducts of gas and petrol that started the war opposition between these various regional and, um, and international actors. Similarly, I think it's very dangerous uh, to portray the same revolution uh, as a sectarian war from its uh, beginning only 
portraying, for example, this uprising as opposing a Sunni, Sunni majority against uh, Alawi minority or portraying everything that is occurring in Syria according to a kind of orientalist lens uh, that uh, understand people of the region for their religion or ethnicity. Um, and finally, it's less um, dangerous than the others, but it's still a bit limiting the, the prospect of understanding of Syria is limiting the, um, its understanding to a, a democratic struggle. Whereas, and this is not particular to, the, to Syria, but throughout the Middle East, especially among liberals uh, in various parts of the world, seeing you know, these popular uprising only as a way to, to achieve parliamentary democracy, while I think uh, it was much more than this, much deeper. Uh, it was not only democratic uh, issues, but it was also socio-economic issues and a, and a, and a, a, a protest against the decades of neoliberal policies being implemented uh, in Syria and in the region, uh, more uh, generally speaking. Uh, could you talk about uh, how the situation became armed? Because I know well, along with the myths that circulate, there's also a lot of sort of accusatory accounts of basically why the rebels became armed. So could you maybe talk about how, how that situation developed? Indeed, uh, we should... Uh, not forget the militarization of the Syrian uprising, uh, which became total, I would say, two years after its uh, beginning, but started in nearly June 2011, started first as a way to to defend uh, protesters against the, the violent attacks of the security services and sections of the army. So people started to organize on a neighborhood level, uh, village, uh, city, uh, to defend the protesters and allow them to continue the protests. So uh, the composition of the people that took arms, there were section of the people uh, that took arms that were, uh, that had defected from the army, but actually the vast majority of people were civilians that took arms. And it was, uh, as we always say, uh, and say was forced upon the Syrian very often to defend themselves and to, to, to take up arms. So the dynamics were very much from uh, below at the beginning with coordination with uh, uh, civilian activists, civilian protest movement, trying to have the both, um, if you want the both hands on one side, uh, maintaining a strong civilian protest movement while being able to defend uh, itself against the violent attacks of regime forces. But throughout time, this, this the dynamics from below progressively, unfortunately, disappeared, and the civilian protest movement lost of its, uh, of its power, of its strength, especially uh, when the Syrian uprising turned completely into a, a military battle, uh, I would say, after 2013, 2014, uh, limiting the resistance against the regime mostly or dominated at least by uh, military struggles. This is without forgetting as well the role played by uh, foreign forces and uh, the Assad regime in strengthening um, through their different ways, but uh, leading to the same result, to the strengthening of uh, Islamic fundamentalist jihadist forces. So the, the regime, for example, liberated from its prison uh, jihadist and Salafist uh, at the beginning of the uprising while it was continuously 
um, imprisoning and repressing and killing Democrats, progressives, uh, putting them in prison, and let them develop. And the regime continuously in the past, for most of, uh, of the uprising, concentrated on democratic forces of the, the Syrian uh, Free Army, the Free Syrian Army, while letting develop the Islamic fundamentalist forces. At, and at the same time, uh, foreign countries such as Turkey, Saudi Arabia and Qatar supported mostly uh, reactionary armed forces or turning them into proxies or as well uh, Islamic fundamentalist and jihadist uh, movement that were also opposed to the initial uh, objectives of the uprising just as the regime. And this is why they turned their arms very often against uh, civilian activists uh, of the protest movement, against local councils, and also attacked other uh, groups of the Free Syrian Army. Thanks. Um, and can you tell us about the contemporary situation in Syria, uh, particularly what's happening in Idlib? So uh, we can see a new forced displacement of nearly a million people in Idlib uh, since the, um, the beginning of the military offensive led by the uh, Syri Syrian armed forces assisted by Russian bombardments and also various uh, militias controlled by uh, Iran. Uh, so as I said, as I mentioned, more than seven, nearly a million people have been forced uh, to leave their homes uh, with this uh, military offensive. The Syrian regime has reached uh, the symbolic city of, uh, symbolic and strategic city of Sarakeb. Sarakeb was a city that was well known for its uh, democratic civilian protest movement that opposed the regime initially and and later when Islamic fundamentalists and jihadist forces entered, they also opposed them. It was a very active and uh, vivid uh, city of uh, democratic aspirations. And it's also very strategic in terms of uh, location because uh, it allowed to the regime to access uh, several main highways that connect uh, Aleppo to, da to Damascus. So the situation in Idlib is absolutely catastrophic and this is without forgetting that this region has been suffering for the past few years of bombardments of the regime and Russian air forces uh, targeting civilians, hospitals, medical institutions uh, and other civilian institutions with catastrophic consequences. This is also, I would like to remind, maybe the people didn't know, but Idlib was between having a population of 2.5 to 3 million people, with half of them already being uh, internally deplaced. While uh, Turkish borders are still closed and people cannot leave, so there are refugee camps close to the border and people live in horrific uh, conditions. So this is for the situation in Idlib and it's very... It's a catastrophic humanitarian situation in all aspects. Otherwise, when we speak about the country, the country has suffered vast damage and widespread destruction because of Damascus war machine backed by its allies, Russia and Iran. Uh, of course, we shouldn't forget all the foreign actors contributed to the displacement of the population and destruction in the country, particularly the military interventions of the US. And Turkey, and to extend the armed opposition uh, forces, such as the Islamic fundamentalists and jihadist forces. Uh, today, 6 million Syrians are IDPs, internally displaced in the country. Um, more than 
the same, nearly the same amount of people are refugees outside of the country, so half, more than half of the population in Syria is, is forcefully displaced. Uh, around 90% of the population live under the poverty line, while more than uh, 11 million people are indeed uh, are in need of humanitarian aid inside the country. The cost of reconstruction is estimated at around uh, 400 billion US dollars. So as you can see, the, the situation in Syria is catastrophic. People are very much suffering. The socio-economic situation is getting worse with the depreciation of the Syrian pound, high inflation. While you have a small minority around Bashar al-Assad and, uh, uh, and this elite that uh, made huge fortunes uh, out of the war and their contacts uh, with the regime. So not uh, nothing to be happy to currently uh, regarding the, the situation of, in Syria. Unfortunately, the, the catastrophe is, is continuing. Mm. Uh, it has been inspiring to see the revival of uprisings elsewhere in the region, like in Lebanon. Do you think this could in any way affect the prospects in Syria? Indeed, uh, it is very uh, inspiring to see the, the, the massive and deep protest movement in Lebanon as well as in Iraq and the continuous uh, protest movement in Sudan and Algeria, remembering people that what started in 2010-2011 is still continuing. It's a long revolution process with ups and downs. At the end of 2018, uh, we fought uh, really in a, in a period of, of deep uh, counter-revolution, and in, which we are still, but uh, these movements gave us hope. And who would have thought that in the beginning of 2019, two dictators that had been in power for more than 30 years would, would be overthrown, Omar al-Bashir in Sudan and uh, Bouteflika in Algeria. So this is uh, very important. While Lebanon and Iraq, two neighboring countries to Syria, is also uh, a key aspect in this issue, and, and especially in your question. But um, and it will have obviously, and it already has uh, consequences on the situation in Syria. Uh, what we can say is that the regime uh, has survived and will survive for the short and mid term, especially with the assistance of Moscow and Tehran. But its resilience does not mean the end of its contradictions or, or any form of dissent within the country, especially in areas held by, um, that were formerly held by opposition forces. Uh, despite engaging in, in repression, the regime still faces challenges. These challenges are, are very big challenges for the regime, and they are the reasons that led to the uprising in the first place. Uh, absence of democracy, even deepen socio-economic in injustice and inequalities. But this, uh, this does not mean that it translates directly into political opportunities for the opposition. And especially uh, the problem is that no viable organized opposition has appeared, uh, especially today. The failures of the opposition in exile and ar armed opposition groups have left many people who had sympathized with the uprising feeling frustrated and bitter. And the absence of a structure, independent, democratic, inclusive, social, Syrian political opposition, which would appeal to the popular classes and social activists had made it difficult for various sectors of the population to unite and challenge the regime on a national scale. Because, for example, the latest demonstrations in the region of Sweda 
are against the economic situation and uh, difficult living conditions in the country, uh, which is an often repeated criticism in many other areas of the country, and even in the so-called what we call the loyalist areas, and the continued also protests and clashes, armed clashes in the in the region of Dera against regime forces demonstrate this situation in many ways that you have regional protests without coordination between them. So uh, what I would say to this question, yes, it gives us hope, the struggle in Lebanon and Iraq, especially challenging sectarianism and neoliberalism, but as well, uh, without the construction of this political alternative that is appealing, that is social, uh, secular, and opposing both the, the regime and Islamic fundamentalist forces, it will be hard to transform these political opportunities into something on a national scale opposing the regime, I would say. How would you describe the political economy of the Syrian regime prior to the revolution and the role that this played in fostering it? So I would say that uh, the acceleration of neoliberal policies uh, with the arrival of Bashar al-Assad in 2000 um, had deep consequences on Syrian, so, uh, Syrian social economic situation. Obviously, you had, uh, with Hafez al-Assad coming to power in 1970, uh, he opposed basically the most radical social economic policies of the of the, if you want, the left wing of the Ba'as between 66 and 70, he actually imprisoned the, the, the president of, of Syria at the time, uh, Salah Hajjid, who was uh, a left wing Ba'asist. And he started a slow, what we called, infitah opening, which was an opening in, in, in economic terms. But this opening was quite slow in 30 years. Um, so it was mostly a, a state led capitalist. Uh, uh, regime on the Hafez al-Assad with increasing liberalization of the economy, first following the, the fiscal crisis of the 80s with diminishing uh, socio-economic assistance and provision to uh, to the poorer classes and popular classes and in 91 a first opening with a particular law of investment but it was really on the Bashar al-Assad that you had a, a rapid and deepening uh, implementation of neoliberal policies with sometimes the the assistance of the IMF that welcomed the policies of uh, Bashar al-Assad. So it was privatization of our sectors of the economy, uh, pushing forward um, what we call the non-productive sectors of the economy, especially banking, finance, uh, luxurious real estate, uh, tourism, leisure activities, etc. against more productive sectors of the economy, which were agriculture and manufacturing that suffered throughout the 2000s and saw their role uh, diminish in the, the Syrian economy. So you had increasing uh, socio-economic uh, inequalities in Syria. Uh, prior to the uprising, more than 30% of the people in Syria were living under the poverty line, while just 30% of others were living just above, but at the limit. Uh, so it meant nearly 60% of people living under or, or close to the poverty line, while uh, people close to Bashar Assad, what I call corny capitalists, meaning that they benefited from their contacts to the, the centers of power to accumulate um, uh, capitals, made huge fortune uh, in Syria. So we had more and more differences also between the centers of cities such as Damascus and 
and Aleppo and with its more popular surrounding neighborhoods. And if we see the geography of the uprising, we can see that the popular neighborhoods of, of large cities such as Damascus, Aleppo, and Homs had a very important role in the uprising, such as also mid-sized cities that, that suffered an increasing lack of social services from the state uh, in the past two or three decades. So the economy, just as other uh, states of the region, was uh, characterized by deepening neoliberal policies and uh, with uh, forms of uh, economic opening, opening that benefited uh, the ruling strata, the, the highest strata of the society, while uh, also uh, unemployment was over uh, between 20 to 30 percent. Graduates, uh, unemployment for graduates was all above uh, this. So it was uh, an economy at, at the benefit of a small minority of people around uh, Bashar al-Assad against the vast majority of the people of Syria. Uh, your book is called The Political Economy of State Resi Resilience. So can you talk about that? How, uh, how has the uh, state functioned in terms of its political economy when responding to the revolution? One of the first things Hafez al-Assad, uh, the father of Bashar al-Assad, uh, did when he came to power in 1970 was to start the building of a very strong uh, neo-patrimonial state where the centers of power and it's the most uh, of the, the decisions power, decision-making power were in its hands. A very strong presidential, monarchical state. And through different means, such as, and by fostering a primordial identity, he divided the same people. He built a very uh, close to him, surrounding him, a group of military men and uh, militias and in the army that were from its very close kinship. Uh, taking also a very, a very much sectarian color um, while allying himself as well with uh, sectors of the bourgeoisie such as in Damascus, this is why explaining its, uh, its, uh, its economic opening while also having different links to, the, to certain the bourgeois and some popular classes through corporatist organizations such as the General Federation of Trade Union or the Peasant uh, association um, and throughout the f three decades he built this uh, new patrimonial power which completely transferred into a patrimonial power with the arrival of Bashar Assad who in many ways even more concentrated is the power uh, of the state in the hands of a few people him and his close associating the family or business partners uh, etc while weakening also the links of the regime with uh, sectors of the society that had historically been linked to the, to the regime and the Ba'as, especially uh, peasants, petit bourgeois sectors of the society, more popular classes through corporatist uh, organizations, such as, as I mentioned, General Federation Trade Union or the Peasant Association, that of course were not uh, instruments of emancipation of the workers and peasants, they were instruments of co-optation and co control and repression but we're still able, to some extent, until the 2000, to, to give uh, some forms of redistribution, even though it was diminishing increasingly uh, at the end of the 90s. And you had the concentration uh, through this complete transformation into a patrimonial power, also reinforcing the primordial 
and entities uh, of the Syrian through various policies, instrumentalizing uh, sectarian and ethnic differences as well, according to region. And this is how uh, we have to understand the repression of the Assad regime uh, during the uprising through its, uh, through its nature. Uh, it is compl- we should not separate it. So it used different ways to repress uh, the repression through different instruments, according to region, uh, sometimes through sectarian differences, ethnic differences, uh, trying to push people against each other, notably by uh, committing crimes in mixed uh, sectarian region to, to push to completely a civil war, uh, to make the, the sectarian appeal uh, the most important. So the, the resilience of the regime came because of its patrimonial nature, meaning also that it, it wasn't like a situation in Egypt or in Tunis that you could cut off the head and let the regime continue. The thing is, uh, in, in Syria, uh, it's much more difficult, such as actually the vast majority of the, the countries uh, of the, the MENA region, Middle East and North Africa, uh, where the centers of power are completely concentrated, the political power being in the hand of Bashar Assad, before the economic power, but now it's a bit more debatable, Rami Makhlouf, who was the cousin of Bashar Assad, the military power was in the hands of uh, the, the brother of Bashar Assad, being Maher Assad and other uh, collaborates, but really the centers of your power were completely concentrated and not separated. In addition to this, and I think this is the most important reason why the, the regime was able to sustain, was the intervention of foreign forces, especially Iran and Russia, that helped the regime to sustain politically, economically, and militarily. Uh, these were the two main reasons why the, the, the regi- regime was able uh, to survive uh, until today, even though, as I mentioned before, with huge contradictions, with huge challenges, and this does not mean that it's the end of the story. But without uh, providing a political alternative uh, that is inclusive, social, secular, it will be hard to, to, to seek these contradictions of the regime, to seek to accumulate uh, within Syria, not only outside, uh, forms of organization, collaboration, to challenge once more in the future, hopefully, uh, this regime. Can you uh, further discuss the role of these uh, different powers, like uh, Russia and uh, Turkey and the U.S.? Well, something must be clear that uh, all, all of them played a very negative role in Syria. But let's start, first of all, uh, with the allied of the regime, Russia and Iran. Both entered on the side of the regime for geopolitical reasons mainly. Uh, Iran, uh, very early on, and it, it intervened mostly through the, the Pazdaran, so the, the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guards, from nearly the beginning of the uprising, providing first uh, military advice, but uh, increasingly sending uh, thousands of uh, Iranian individuals, plus uh, sending also uh, militias, Afghan militias and Pakistani militias to Syria to combat against the different uh, opposition armed forces while training and uh, funding uh, sectarian militias in Syria, whether being foreign or uh, locally based. For Iran, the most important thing was to maintain the route uh, open between uh, basically Tehran, 
Syria and Lebanon, the regime have been playing a very important role in Iran strategy in the region of um, of allowing the weapons uh, transfer to Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, so it was mostly for geopolitical consideration. Russia also intervened to save one of its, uh, the, the main ally it had in the Middle East at the time. And this occurred after Libya, that was also a state in with, with which uh, Russia had collaboration and contract. So Russia wanted to maintain also an ally in the region. It was a geopolitical ally, Syria. It has been for, for decades. Syria used to be a, a big uh, purchaser of weapons. In Russia, so these two players uh, played, as I said, a, a fundamental role in the regime surviving to the uprising. And Russian massive intervention from 2015 was definitely the, the game changer. Today, as I said, the, the main considerations were geopolitical, but today they also want to benefit from the spoils of war. And we've seen increasingly, especially Russia, uh, taking control through uh, various private companies linked to President uh, Putin taking control of natural resources in Syria or taking the management of key installations such as uh, the port of Tartus for uh, Russia. Uh, Iran is a bit less benefiting from the spoilers war until now, uh, especially because it's facing increasing internal opposition and because of financial difficulties, whether being of sanctions or of its own uh, economic policies. When it comes to the so-called allies of the Syrian revolution or friends of the Syrian revolution, as it was presented, as I always say, uh, if you have friends like this, leave them uh, now. You can't have worse. But Saudi Arabia, Turkey and and Qatar played a destructive role among the opposition by supporting the the most reactionary and opportunist elements of it. But it's important to remember also that prior to the revolution, these allies were close allied to the uh, these, these actors were close allies or at least had good relations with, with the same regime. Uh, Turkey and, and Syria had very good relations with uh, free trade agreement. Erdogan and Bashar al-Assad spending vacations together, uh, while Gulf monarchies were very important or the most important investors in Syria, especially Qatar and Syria shared a very good uh, relationship. And in the first six months of the uprising, these states tried actually to find a solution to maintain this regime. They did not want to see it overthrown, so they seek superficial reforms in Syria, but uh, Bashar al-Assad refused. While Turkey and Qatar wanted to include in a so-called united national government sectors of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which are uh, allies of Turkey and, and Qatar. As the uprising pursued and continued, these actors saw less and less uh, ability to overthrow Bashar al-Assad, and have a, a friendlier regime in Syria and did not want to, to obviously to overthrow the regime but to change Bashar al-Assad their objective changed especially following Russia's intervention in Syria for now Saudi Arabia, Qatar and other Gulf monarchies the, the, the clear thing is that they don't want to see the influence of Iran continue to grow in Syria. Mohammed bin Salman has said we don't have any problem with Bashar al-Assad. Our problem is that he doesn't become an Iranian puppet. While Turkey's main issue is uh, the Kurdish issue in Syria and the fact that the PYD, which is a sister branch of the PKK, has been able to establish uh, 
areas in which it has control over it in Syria and therefore Turkish effort until today has con- has concentrated on trying to end the the influence of the PYD in Syria leading to the occupation for example of Afrin with demographic uh, changes more than 150,000 people forcefully displaced by Turkish and proxy forces of Turkey very often Islamic fundamentalist militias Syrian Islamic fundamentalist militias committing uh, daily crimes. When it comes to, and they played a role also in sectarian, and furthering the the sectarianism of various actors of the opposition, or in uh, towards uh, ethnic differences and tension between Arab and Kurds as well. And Gulf monarchy furthering further by their, the the television and media, a sectarian understanding of the regime, like uh, Sunnis opposing minorities, especially Alawis. Uh, when it comes to the U.S., U.S., there's been a lot of myths about uh, U.S. rule in Syria. First of all, we should remember that in the first weeks of the revolution, Hillary Clinton declared at the time she was uh, Secretary, U.S. Secretary of State, declared that Bashar Assad was a reformist and wasn't like his father, so time should be given to him to, to prove that uh, he could have, uh, you know, could do reform, control the situation. This situation changed progressively. Uh, Barack Obama asked for the depart of departure of Bashar Assad, but without joining any kind of uh, practical policy to lead to this uh, objective. On the opposite, the main lesson that the U.S. had from Iraq is that they don't want a change of regime, but they don't only want to have superficial changes, and they actually also uh, prevented the. Uh, the sending the transfer of particular weapons to the Syrian opposition armed forces, especially when it comes to weapons uh, that could have targeted planes and air forces, uh, it could have helped the, the Syrian armed opposition, so it prevented it. The US wanted a kind of a solution in Syria with minimal changes and with actually with the advent of the Islamic State, the so-called Islamic State, this changed completely the, the focus of the US towards, uh, uh, I, I would say, ISIS first uh, policy, concentrating all its forces to putting an end to, to, to the so-called Islamic State. And this is where the collaboration with the Syrian Democratic Forces led by the PYD started. So the US never wanted at any time to overthrow the Syrian regime, uh, quite on the opposite. And today, even though uh, Trump has some differences with Obama, uh, it is maintaining its main position of wanting minimum change in Syria, while the only difference might be the targeting by Trump of Iranian influence in Syria. And this is why it is supporting very much and pushing, uh, uh, because it has the power to intervene in Syria. Israelis strikes in Syria targeting Hezbollah and Iranian forces or supported forces. But all these actors uh, played, a, in many ways, a counter-revolutionary role uh, in Syria and never uh, supported the, the aspirations of the, the Syrian popular classes for democracy, social justice and equality, because a democratic Syria would be a threat to the authoritarian regimes of the region and would be a threat to, to Israel as well. I remember very well the Foreign Minister, Avigdor Lieberman, the beginning of the uprisings in the region, saying 
the biggest threat after Iran is the, 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 a, a democratic region of the Middle East and North Africa. And he understood very well that if there's more democratic aspiration, more democratic regimes in the Middle East and North Africa, they would put much more pressure on Israel again and support the, the Palestinian liberation movement, the aspiration of the Palestinian people. While all these regimes in the region have used the Palestinian issue or, or have actually repressed it or want to put an end to it. It makes me uh, really smack my uh, head into my hands that so many people still think that the U.S. is trying to carry out regime change in Syria. Uh, wh what do you say to the refrain on sections of the left that the main enemy is at home so we should not oppose the uh, Syrian regime? Yeah, actually, it, it, it's really a shame and it's not looking at uh, what happened regarding U.S. Uh, imperial policy since 2003. Obviously, at the beginning of the 2000s and mostly in the 90s, we, we had kind of a unipolar moment with the end of the USSR, uh, not saying that it was a model, obviously, to follow on the opposite, quite, uh, it was an autocratic regime. But uh, meaning that the U.S. were at its heydays in the 90s, 2000, but following the Iraqi-British-led uh, invasion of Iraq, it was the beginning of, uh, if you want, a unipolar moment for the U.S. In, in many ways. Obviously, the U.S. remains the main imperial military and economic power in the world, but it's not alone and it cannot um, act at the same way as before. Uh, international actors have taken more importance, such as Russia, China, but also regional actors, such as Turkey, uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the UAE, and obviously Israel. And the second weakening, if you want, after the, the defeat of the US in Iraq was the economic financial crisis 2008, and finally the uprisings in the Middle East and of Africa that first started by uh, overthrowing two dictators that were close allied to the US. All these uprisings were shakening to the US, but also for other regional actors. This said, I think, by using the, the, the citation of Karl Liebersnest, communist, uh, uh, very important German communist, the main is at home, and turning it, saying, to, we have to concentrate only on our, on our uh, ruling class, is, is, is completely not understanding his, his famous citation. When he said that the main enemy is at home, which is a statement he made in condemnation of imperialist aggression against Russia, led by his native Austria, Germany. Uh, many have decontextualized de uh, the views of uh, Liebernitz. Liebernitz's perspective, fighting against the enemy at home, did not mean ignoring foreign regimes repressing their own people or failing to show solidarity with the oppressed. Indeed, Liebernitz believed we must oppose our own ruling classes, of course, push for war, by cooperating with the proletariat of other countries whose struggle is against their own imperialists. So it does not mean uh, erasing the same people. On the opposite, is putting them forward in your own uh, struggle. Uh, we, as leftists, must support you know, revolutionary people struggling for freedom and emancipation. And again, I would like to, to and this is the same text that they use, the, the, the citation, the main enemy is at home from Liebermann. He said, ally yourselves to the international class struggle against the conspiracies of secret diplomacy against imperialism, against war, for peace within the socialist spirit. 
when you, you read this, which actually reflect a lot on the current situation in Syria, <laughs> conspiracies of secret diplomacy against war, uh, against imperialists, and uh, for peace within social spaces, in, in, in this perspective, you cannot exclude None of these aspects should be excluded from our struggle to build a progressive leftist, if you want, platform uh, for the same revolution, but also for all the revolutions uh, occurring, all the, the protest movements uh, and uprising. It's very important that in the face, especially in these past few months of, you know, further increasing geopolitical tensions, instrumentalized whether by imperialist powers such as the U.S., Uh, or Russia on the other side, or regional powers such as Iran, Saudi Arabia, and others, the struggling popular classes should remain our uh, lodestar of progressives and internationalists around the world. Our main identity as leftists, I believe, is to be in solidarity with people struggling for freedom uh, and emancipation. And therefore, not to deconstitutalize, uh, answering your question, this sentence remain is me at home and basically erasing people in struggle or you got the next one Ani? yes thank you um we're firmly in agreement what's the role of sectarianism in the conflict and how do you respond to people who sort of equate the rebels with isis so uh regarding sectarianism in the conflict sectarianism in the region has been used by the ruling strata of society ruling Uh, ruling classes as, a, as an instrument uh, to divide popular classes, as an instrument for repression, as an instrument of cooptation and control. It's a way for ruling classes to divide, to, if you want to diverse from a class struggle, to, to prevent people coming out together in solidarity across sectarian differences. And this is why what we're witnessing today in Lebanon and Syria, country, both countries that have suffered Uh, huge sectarian tensions and crimes in the in the past few decades coming out together and saying we are one is very important in this aspect. And therefore the regime has not been different. It has used, as I explained before and mentioned, the, the sectarianism and since Hafez Assad came to power in 1970 to, to divide the people, to scare sectors of the society, to, to blame others. But the, saying this, it does not mean that the, the regime per se is Alawi. No, the regime has never served the, the interests of the popular, the Halawi popular classes. Uh, you find in the ruling strata in Syria various uh, sectarian differences, uh, and basically they are bent together because of loyalty, because of nepotism, of clientelist, uh, and other forms of networks. And uh, again, sectarianism has been used throughout the region by different regimes, to divide the people, repress, and put an end to, to, to popular movement. At the same time, we cannot deny that also sectors of the opposition in Syria, especially Islamic fundamentalists and jihadist fortresses, but not only, even some liberal sectors have used sectarianism because of their lack to, to provide an inclusive and, and social political program, so appealing to the sectarian uh, identities of the people, but uh, it played also a catastrophic role. The sectarianism of these sectors of the opposition, especially Islamic and jihadist forces that scared not only, as we often say, uh, religious minorities in Syria, but also large sectors of the society, Sunnis, or, or people that did not uh, want to live in a reactionary uh, Islamic state. And th their behavior were also opposed Uh, in uh, the, the what we used to call liberated areas 
by the popular classes. And this answers basically your, se- your second question by saying the revolution forces at the same of ISIS is not knowing the history of the Syrian uprising. Actually, the first people, even before, I would say, the, the Syrian democratic forces led by the POID to oppose ISIS were Syrian Arab popular classes with the collaboration also of the Syrian Kurdish uh, popular classes, notably in Aleppo and various areas of the northeast in the end of 2013, beginning of 2014, there were vast protest movement against uh, against ISIS because of uh, opposing their authoritarian and reactionary uh, behavior. But opposition had been seen from prior. This is what I was saying, that the most important thing to not forget about the Syrian uprising, it was how it, it brought together vast sectors of the Syrian society that not necessarily used to meet to talk to each other in the two first years of the uprising until now, today, but in the civilian protest movement that was very, very strong, you had all the sectors of society present, Arab Kurds, uh, Assyrian, uh, Turkmen, uh, Armenian, etc. Uh, all the various uh, sectarian differences, Sunnis, Alawis, Christian, Druze, uh, Shia, etc. And the, the main slogan is the people, uh, the, the Syrian people uh, are one and united. We are against sectarianism, uh, having also appeals, uh, for social appeals. You had shows of solidarity between cities, such as Salamiye, which is majority inhabited by Ismailis, uh, with uh, Hama, which is majority inhabited in, in Sunni. They, they broke the, the siege on Hama at the beginning of the uprising. Uh, you have huge, uh, the coordination committees were had democratic uh, aspirations, the, the local councils, obviously they had limitations when it came to democratic uh, issues, to, to women's, issue, women's rights issues, minority issues, but this, some of them were still able to provide a democratic alternative to the regime and to the Islamic fundamentalist forces. And people continue to oppose uh, forces such as ISIS, such as uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, Jaysh al-Islam, other Salafist forces. So no, the vast majority of the uprising, in, especially in its first years, were democratic with equality and uh, social uh, objectives as well. And you had I mean, there are many figures and personalities, groups I could, I could cite that uh, played a very important role in the, the civilian and protest movement, while Islamic fundamentalist forces or ISIS did not play this role in these uh, committees, coordination committees or local councils. On the opposite, they established the other local councils as a way to oppose the democratic uh, actors. And again, it was the, 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 the same revolution popular classes with the Arabs or Kurds that opposed first these, these reactionary actors that are a second wind of the, the, the counter-revolution. No, no, so definitely the, the accusation is not true that ISIS and revolutionary forces, democratic forces and progressive forces are the same, quite on the opposite. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth noting um, a lot of people nowadays strangely sort of imply that uh, ISIS played a role from the start when, you know, they didn't get involved until around uh, around 2014. And, you know, as you said, we've seen clashes even through to today. So in Idlib, from what I understand, you've seen clashes where uh, basically uh, revolutionary protesters would uh, try and keep HTS 
uh, out of out of their rallies, and you had uh, Radio Fresh, which was a, a revolutionary radio yeah. station, uh, which was um, like attacked by Islamist forces for um, for having women hosting, and uh, and obviously the founder was was assassinated. So those um, those tensions are ongoing. Where in the in the rebel regions, you do still have these have these democratic forces that will uh, that will challenge the Islamists. So absolutely, I agree. Um, another question, you mentioned the uh, the community councils. Uh, can you talk about those? Uh, we understand um, the uh, Omar Aziz uh, anarchist played a role in popularizing the community councils. Can you can you talk about them? Yeah, local councils. So um, the local councils were actually uh, start, started and even prior to Omar Aziz writing his piece on the necessity to, to provide a, basically a political social alternative to the state and state institution, uh, which was a very famous text, I think it was the end, end of 2011, beginning of 2012. He was an inspiration, obviously, for the foundation, especially of local councils in Rif Damascus, uh, Damascus province, in Douma and uh, other areas. But it started to, to appear in, in areas where the regime uh, disappeared, so people had to, to, to self-organize. And this is how local councils started to appear in and to be established in, in, in areas where the regime uh, forces and authority had disappeared to, to manage basically the society, the local population, provide institutions. And this started to appear, I would say, in the end of 2011, beginning of 2012. Obviously, as I mentioned before, not all of them were democratic. At least 50% or a bit more throughout the time were designated or by armed forces or were kind uh, established through consensus by local families, local tribes, or the main personalities of the city. But you did have experiences of demo democratic experiences. As I said, there were a lack of women, uh, there were a lack of uh, religious minorities in some cases. Uh, some uh, other issues, but they did at one point provide this alternative and what I call this attempt of a situation of dual power, meaning that in a this is one of the main characteristics of a, a revolution situation when you have other uh, an alternative uh, political pro uh, power present uh, in the state. And in this uh, aspect, uh, local councils were a very interesting uh, experience and uh, one of the things that we should remember of uh, of the Syrian uprising or revolution process this energy for self-organizing despite the difficulties despite the threats coming from different sides whether the regime or from Islamic fundamentalist forces or jihadist forces that very often try to establish their own local councils so it was really important and without oh, we should also mention it because uh, it also has been interesting uh, institutions in what uh, we call the Rojava, also the self-administration, although it, it had also some authoritarian aspects on many occasions, uh, mostly controlled by the PYD, but it did also have very positive characteristics such as the secularization of laws and institutions, women's participation in inclusion and religious minorities uh, also as inclusion and some social aspect even this was not at the forefront uh, yeah thanks um and it does seem like the the rojava councils are um for some reason there's been a lot more attention to them than the councils in syria 
But uh, what role has the Syrian diaspora played since the crackdown? Well, obviously, the, the, the Syrian diaspora played, uh, played a role. Obviously, we have to say uh, that uh, it is not homogeneous. It has political differences. I mean, not only that you have people that are uh, pro-regime, some people are neutral, and you have various uh, differences among the opposition, people being supportive of conservative forces, some others being more liberal forces, some had supported the various uh, Syrian opposition forces in exile, while others tried to, to support, such as me, uh, progressive actors, progressive groups within Syria. A lot of the diaspora played uh, an important role when it came to medical assistance, humanitarian assistance. Uh, Syrians have established lots of numbers of uh, NGOs, of uh, different types of organizations to come and help uh, Syrians. You also saw various forms of organization on political level outside as well, or helping newspapers within the country. Dozens of newspapers were established, even more than 50 newspapers were established at the beginning of the uprising in Syria, whereas before it was only three, if you want, main newspapers controlled by the state or by figures of the state. Syrian diaspora also played a role uh, in trying to put forward the Syrian uh, issue on the agenda of various countries, uh, providing different discourse or trying also very often now what we see is that they're playing an important role very often Syrian exile that are now living in exile part of the diaspora when it comes to pursuing the regime's human rights violation uh, trying to push forward these cases in various uh, international or local tribunals so it, ha it had had different role and it's not homogeneous it has its differences yeah. So the Turkish regime is now uh, saying that Syrian refugees are able to return to their homes. What, what's your take on this development? Well, the Turkish regime and uh, the Lebanese regime also have been trying to push uh, refugees to go back uh, to Syria forcefully, uh, more often, and putting the blame on both countries, putting the blame on the, their socio-economic uh, negative situation on Syrian refugees. This is obviously not true. Uh, for a vast majority of Syrian refugees, they're, they're not able to go back to their uh, to their homes uh, or because the war is continuing or because the economic crisis in Syria is very uh, hard or because of security issues. Uh, very often you need uh, a particular permission of the security services, you need to pay various officers to reach your home, your home might have been destroyed, uh, you're also under the threat of entering a military conscription for, uh, for men between 18 and 42 years old. Only a small amount of people of Syrian refugees have come back until now. Very small amount. Uh, and this should be said. So no, the, the, the situation is definitely not allowing a safe and secure return of the vast majority of Syrian refugees. For the reason I mentioned, uh, whether the, the threats of being arrested, imprisoned by uh, or killed. There have been cases of Syrian refugees coming back to Syria and being killed or arrested uh, or being forced to, 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 to go serve uh, in the military. So um, what we witnessed a bit is some IDPs or mostly refugees coming back are elderly people or women with their children. And even these are very small amount and very often people are leaving or Turkey or Syria because the situation is not possible in their host countries. So no, no, definitely the situation is not 
safe for people to come back to Syria. Is is the plans still being uh, suggested uh, by other countries and by Syria and Russia and Turkey to have camps within Syria that they then send Syrian refugees back to Syria and then they hold them in the camps so they can figure out who's loyal and then like you said who, who to conscript etc mm-hmm. no for the moment the only kind of uh, if you want border refugee camps you have it in the north as Turkey is uh, closing its borders and not only co- closing its borders it's uh, it's gendarme Turkish gendarme are even uh, violenting and uh, killing Syrian refugees trying to go to, to the Turkish side. They've been doing this for the past few years while they, they built the wall as well. But also in this case, it's uh, very important to denounce the role of the European Union that has transformed the Mediterranean Sea into a big cemetery, not only of Syrian refugees, but of refugees, more generally speaking, thousands of refugees are dying in the Mediterranean Sea, You had companies such as Frontex, Frontex, which is a border patrol, police patrol, security patrol funded by the European Union, preventing refugees to reach uh, Europe. Europe has turned into a fortress, and you can only see the, the situation in Greece and uh, in refugee camps. It's catastrophic. People are even you know, killing themselves because of, of the situation. It's completely overpacked. So the European Union is playing a destructive and murderous role while still funding, you know, Lebanese government or Turkish government in officially saying it's helping the refugees, while in Turkey only 10% of the refugees lives in camps. So this money doesn't go for for the refugees, while in Lebanon also the, the, the European funding is not going directly to the, the same refugees in most of the cases. So, no, it's, a, it's very important to denounce the role of the European Union in this perspective, and it's not only The, the, the extreme right-wing forces, it's also what the so-called liberal governments, the liberal right-wing uh, governments uh, uh, having the same policy regarding this. So the most important thing being for the European Union to uh, not have a new wave, uh, as they say, of Syrian refugees. Uh, and Turkey has also used uh, this in its relation ship with uh, the European Union to, to pressure them. Erdogan has, uh, on many occasions, in a very racist way, say, I will unleash another wave of uh, uh, refugees on you if you don't uh, uh, come to an agreement on this, on this uh, issues uh, with me. No, no, it's a catastrophe regarding the, the refugee situation and not mm-hmm. even though you have, uh, especially in the European Union, a very Uh, nice and uh, superficial discourse regarding the the, the suffering of uh, refugees. Uh, why, why have sections of the left so singularly failed to correctly appraise the Syrian revolution? Well, I think, uh, first of all, we have to, to acknowledge the weakness of the left, uh, internationally speaking. It's also a reflection of, of the situation. Uh, linked to this, I think the, the internationalist aspect of uh, of many progressive groups and leftist groups has has been has been weakening. But it also linked to the the, the first uh, reason. Also, uh, it's a bit linked to the myth we we mentioned in, in the beginning of uh, the interview. I think a lot of the left has concentrated only on a geopolitical consideration. 
following uh, very much compassed uh, policies, meaning in other words that you you follow a block, whether you're with U.S. imperialism or against U.S. imperialism, without looking at the uh, the, the struggle from below and seeing that it's a much more complex situation. Obviously, we oppose U.S. imperialism, but we also oppose, for example, Russian imperialism, or we oppose the various regional uh, powers, whether they might have a so-called uh, rhetoric opposing the U.S., which unfortunately has been understood as anti-imperialism, which is not at all by Iran, Hezbollah. So I think also a lack of the understanding of the, the various dynamics in the region, of the understanding of the the nature of the regimes we're facing. And in, in this, of course, m- much more, I would say, could have been done in terms of international solidarity. And again, I think the, mo- the main reason is due to a general generalized crisis of the left. Before, it used to raise international the internationalist flag very high, but you do have uh, some sections of the left having a more, I would say, nationalistic perspective, you know, sovereignty, etc. And taking sides with, as I mentioned before, with this or this particular camp and not with the people in struggle. And this is a direct result of, I would say, weakening of class consciousness and forgetting that all our destinies are linked. We should not forget that the beginning of the uprising in the Middle East inspired the whole world. The Occupy movement came out of Tahrir Square and other uh, forms of, of this kind of experiences. Also, you have some sections of the left, as I said, only focusing on Western imperialism, without trying to learn from popular struggle from the Middle East. They point to the limitation alone without noticing that these uprisings are shaking the world. They also, the sections of the left, refuse to denounce some regional despotic regimes. Uh, and as Lenin said, some expect, expect, you know, a perfect social revolution. This never occurred in the history. Not even the Bolshevik one was that. A perfect, nice one without contradictions, problem, etc. This said, I however think that some small sections of the left, of the left, internationalism is still very important and I have collaborated throughout the world with various sections of the left that have supported the same uprising. Not only in a rhetorical sense, but as a means to learn from certain experiences abroad, of revolutionary experiences, uh, revolutionary dynamics. And this is without forgetting the large participation of progressive and democratic groups and individuals occurred initially in the Syrian uprising. Especially in the first years, there was a lot of presence of progressive in, in the Syrian revolution. Some who despair at the left responses, I know I do, to the Syrian revolution say socialism is no longer relevant. Why do you continue to support a socialist political project? What relevance does this have to contemporary uprisings? Well, uh, it's not because, uh, especially coming from this political background, I would say that, you know, it's not because Stalin claimed to be a communist that this was communism, quite on the opposite. I uh, mainly think he was a form of counter-revolution against the Russian Revolution in 1917. And and just as it's not because people claim to be on the left uh, with very bad policies and politics that I should stop struggling for the emancipation and freedom of popular classes within a socialist project that is internationalist, that is linking uh, issues of oppression and exploitation, and that we don't differentiate it. 
And because what is the alternative? Go to the right. Uh, I, I don't think the right has a better record regarding uh, the, the Syrian uh, revolution, or at least in supporting the aspirations for democracy, social justice, and equality of the right. And I, I still believe that a socialist politi political project, not only for Syria, but for the whole world, is still of very much of relevance. And especially when we see the crisis of neoliberalism and the hegemony of the neoliberal ruling class since 2008, but more particularly in the past year, we shouldn't focus only on the Middle East, that these revolts were against authoritarianism, but also against a project of neoliberalism. And we see it throughout the world, in Chile, Haiti, rising uh, protest movements in different parts of the world, Hong Kong as well, or Catalonia for self-determination of the people, We've seen also in the U.S., you know, now saying you're a socialist is not anymore an insult, uh, depending for who, obviously. But, I mean, it's uh, some things that are interesting to see and that uh, what the famous conservative uh, historian Fukuyama said it was the end of the history. It is not. It is not. And uh, unfortunately, uh, what we're seeing is that this crisis of uh, neoliberal hegemony of the ruling class is not necessarily directly benefiting to the to the left to a, a progressive alternative, but unfortunately to right-wing fascistic uh, movements or personalities, Trump, Bolsonaro, Erdogan, Putin, uh, other, we can see the similar things occurring in European Union. And we have to provide an alternative that is against this uh, far-right-wing or fascistic uh, political actors or groups, but also against uh, a form of neoliberal authoritarian uh, project represented mostly by Trudeau, Macron uh, or Merkel. Both of them are enemies of the popular classes, we should be, be very clear, and are providing anything better for the popular classes. And especially when we see all the challenges, do we going to seek a, a solution from the right, uh, from a capitalist perspective for the ecological crisis? No, obviously not. What about the borders? They, they mostly all agree on uh, transforming Europe or all northern country into huge fortress, huge barrier preventing people that are in need to seek a better life so even again as i mentioned it's not because some claim to be socialist that we should abandon the ideals of socialism i mean the the, the track record of capitalism since it was, it became dominating the whole world is catastrophic do we blame capitalists for this? No, we claim uh, the personality of people, I don't know what, etc. So no, I, I still believe and I will always believe that uh, what we need is an internationalist socialist perspective and that the, the solution is not obviously in one country but uh, across borders and because I believe that our destinies are linked. When I see a, a struggle wherever it is, I feel it's my struggle as well because I know if they allow for, for victories, it's also victories for, for our camp. And uh, as also the ruling classes know that they're leading a class struggle, we should be aware of it as well. So this is why I believe that uh, still it's a very much of relevance today and more than ever with all the, the challenges facing the popular classes throughout the world. Yeah, when you talk about the liberal, liberal authoritarian regimes, I mean, I think of uh, the recent stuff in Canada with the, uh, the encroachment uh, into the Wet'suwet'en territory and, you know, having Tr Trudeau as a president hasn't stopped that. Uh, but if you add what to, can... to, to France, the, the, the repression against the Gilets Jaunes has been mm. terrible as well. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, and what can people outside of Syria do to show solidarity with the Syrian revolution? Well, I think uh, still many things can be done. Uh, first of all, uh, it's it's on two main aspects. I would say to continue to support, you know, solidarity groups uh, with the Syrian revolution that have a democratic, non-sectarian, and equality aspiration and social justice as well. I think this is very important to continue to support this group, support the memory of a Syrian uprising that was strong and democratic and uh, had this initial aspiration, not. Uh, as we, we mentioned in the beginning, by portraying the same revolution only as a today as a geopolitical and um, a sectarian uh, war, uh, not forgetting uh, that you had millions of people in the streets. So this is very important, uh, having this memory being transmitted to the people, whether Syrians and others. One of the biggest, I think, uh, advantage of uh, of this Syrian uprising compared to the, the, the protest movement and the, the resistance we had in the 70s and 80s, is that a memory has been accumulated in these past few years. That has not been the case, unfortunately, in the 70s or 80s, where you had huge strikes, strong leftist and trade union uh, movement. This was not transmitted to the new generation of Syrians. So this is very important to build on these experiences for future experience. Also pursuing, you know, democratic struggles regarding the condemnation and denouncement of violation of human rights in Syria. For example, it's very important what happened at the end of 2019 in Germany, where two former members of the security services were arrested, but uh, in order to condemn them for violation of human rights in Syria. And I think this is very important. All criminals should be pursued for their criminal actions in Syria and put in, continue to put the pressure on this aspect to, 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 to put pressure to know where are the disappeared, the people that were kidnapped, the, the uh, political prisoners, the, the prisoners in, in, in general, pursuing to know what happened to them is very important. Also, what I think is important is linking these uprisings to the, to the struggles we have in, in, the, in the countries we live in meaning that we, we link the refugee issue to the socio-economic situation, to the, the political appeals, to the political uh, struggles, such as struggling against Islamophobia, struggling against racism, uh, struggling against austerity measures that attack all of us. Also, making the links between uh, these uprisings and uh, these causes where we, we live in. Because a refugee that wants to be politically active can, will not be will be very difficult to him if he's not able to have a proper job, housing, be able to have you know not a document saying he can only stay a year or he has to leave very who is under the the threat of being kicked out every minute, and this is linked to our also our own political uh, struggles for democratic and social social economic issues when we we struggle against anti-terrorist laws. It's not only about you know, struggling against Islamophobia, more repressive policies, but it's also about, because these laws are used against activists, against ecological activists, against uh, trade unionists, or against other types of, of activism. So I think it's very important, uh, again, it's my, I very often say, because really I believe it, and it's this link, you know, uh, that destiny is a link, and just understanding as well the way imperialism works, in this aspect also, the, the, the various imperial interventions in the region of the Middle East has not helped the people of the region. On the opposite, uh, it has fostered the, 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 the problems 
of this country, whether by supporting directly or indirectly these authoritarian regimes or by bombing and creating the conditions for the rise of groups such as an Islamic State or Al-Qaeda, etc. Many reasons are sectarianism, authoritarian regime, neoliberal policies, but I think it's very important to, to link these two issues when uh, continuing to show solidarity with the Syrian revolution and understanding that the Syrian revolution is not only something isolated from the rest of the uprisings also, making link with it, with the regional uprising, and trying also challenging the sectarianism and ethnic tensions that are currently occurring uh, in Syria, while putting forward a democratic and social framework. So I would say, no, a lot of can still be done, even though the conditions are very difficult, uh, the, the situation in many ways uh, is worsening. Really, I think, uh, in terms of the analysis of imperialism, I really think 2011, you know, it was a revolution, set of revolutions, obviously, but I think it also overturned our understanding, as any revolution does. And so, you know, we had these, as you say, these coordinates before that it was all about the USA, but then you had these uprisings that were against various regimes, whether they were officially aligned with the USA or not. So we kind of had to you know, reorientate and say it's actually not all about all about the USA. There's a, a lot that I think is still to to learn from uh, from that, and I agree. Uh, keeping the memory alive is as a part of that, uh, and we'll we'll link recommended sources uh, in the in the description for the uh, for the episode. Yeah, what are the next steps for your group, the Alliance of Middle East and North African Socialists? Well, to continue to our work, we we know we're, we're still a small network, but we try to to expand to to have new people contributing to the website, contributing to, to for articles, analysis, statements, doing this kind of live stream conferences that have been, I think, a success. Trying to do translation work as well from Arabic, English, Persian, sometimes Kurdish, if we can. Giving, continuing to, to, to expand this uh, small network, we don't see ourselves as going to change the, the whole situation tomorrow or after tomorrow, but it's, it's important for people to, to know that they can find people with internationalist aspiration, with a socialist appeal, and inclusive, and foster debates among us uh, that want to build something new and, and better for the popular classes of the region. So even though we know we're small, we'll continue in this, in this perspective and bring our support as much as we can uh, through our work, uh, through our, our different activities to the liberation and emancipation of people and try uh, the popular classes of the region and elsewhere continue collaboration with internationalists such as you uh, and others. This is what we think is, is important, uh, while knowing that uh, we're still a small network, but trying to do as much as we can. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for you. You're very welcome. Uh, just a reminder for our listeners, uh, Joseph released a book last year entitled Syria After the Uprisings, The Political Economy of State Resilience. So to be sure to check that out if you want to know more. Thank you for listening. Good night and resist.
Okay, okay, okay. Keep the ahi burning. Welcome to the local area network where I bring you news and history from the Asia Pacific with a shameless social justice bias. Just a note, as well as the anniversary of the Syrian revolution, March 15th is also the anniversary of the Christchurch shooting, the far-right attack on Al Noor Mosque. We remember the dead and fight for the living. This month's segment is an update on the Protect Ihuma Tao campaign. This is a fight to protect Māori land from an incursion by Fletcher Building, who sought to develop high-density housing for the rich on protected land. By the way, this show's listeners are mainly in the US, with New Zealand coming in second, so I'll try to explain terms for people who may not be familiar with New Zealand politics and te reo Māori. Last year in September, when we first covered the Protect Ihu Mātau struggle, it was at its height of clashes with the police. At the time, your humble narrator was based in Melbourne, despite coming from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Since then, I've had a chance to visit so this segment will mainly consist of my own experiences there, followed by an update on more recent developments. In December to January, I returned to Aotearoa, New Zealand, my home, for a holiday. Having missed the height of the Ihumatau struggle, I was keen to stay there for a few days to help out. Dad bought me a one-person tent and sleeping bag, and I headed north. On messaging the campaign page on Facebook, they said they weren't generally taking on new campers, but they'd take me if I was willing to keep the fire burning. At the time, I thought this was a metaphor, but it turned out they literally wanted me to keep the ahi, or the campfire, going throughout the evening. A fellow ahika told me that the chant ake 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 keep the ahi burning was a key slogan and chant of this counter-occupation. This refers back to the old line kafafai tonu mato ake 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 or we will keep fighting forever and ever and ever and ahi again means fire hence keep the ahi burning so keep the fire burning. They said they intended to keep this fire going until there was a resolution. So on the first night, I stayed up to 3am helping out. They were very generous hosts, offering food and help with this job, as well as a big orange jacket, Ivers jacket, to keep warm during the night. It was a fairly relaxing job, to be honest, staring into the beautiful warm fire, adding logs once an hour or so, and it was great to be able to help out at all. After initially worrying that they didn't really need anyone, because without the cops there they didn't need as many bodies, it was more of a skeleton crew now, I then realised there were still jobs things going. 
uh, as leader Hania Newton and others negotiated. It was clear that negotiations were progressing, but not quite clear when they'd be resolved, although it's at the time seemed like they'd be resolved soon. As I mentioned, cops were no longer stationed on site and no longer attempting to clear protectors out. But they regularly would send a couple of people to monitor the campsite. The role of the Ahika, although primarily being to keep the fire burning, also doubled as keeping an eye on the cops and liaising with them. While they shouldn't have been there at all in my view, they were not nearly as much of a threat as they had been. I stayed for a couple more nights and was relieved by other ahika on those nights as well as doing a daytime shift by the fire. Having come from Nam or Melbourne in so-called Australia, I had a lot of conversations about the raging bushfires there at the time and the shocking negligence of a right-wing government. The atmosphere was family-friendly, with kids playing in and around the garage, while the tactic of camping was superficially similar to the Occupy movement. This was a lot more well-organized and focused. Indigenous people have a history of such counter-occupations, uh, like the 70s Bastion Point occupation in Aotearoa. After three nights there, I got a ride from one of the Kaumatua to the bus exchange and took the bus down south back to my home city of Wellington or Whanganui Atara. At that time, it seemed the negotiations were near a resolution. The group announced on Facebook that one would likely be achieved by February 6th, Waitangi Day the commemoration of the treaty between Māori and the Crown. Yet at the time of writing, a resolution is still forthcoming. The land has been upgraded to the highest heritage listing by Heritage New Zealand, which is a victory and should influence government decisions. There are rumours that the government is compensating Fletcher Building at a significantly greater rate than they purchased it for, double or more. The company only ever cared about profit, so rewarding their attempted land theft seems like an insult. Ardern's Labour government remains a government of disappointing half-measures, somewhat romanticised by people living elsewhere in the world as things get so much worse elsewhere in the world. Yet yeah, it does seem overall like the Protect Ihumatau struggle is basically won. It's maybe not won a complete victory, but at least has stopped the building and earned some right to the land, not that it needed to be earned. This is a rare victory in these dark times. You can keep up with updates on the Protect Ihumatau Facebook page, which we'll link in the description. If you found this useful, please consider setting up a monthly donation to our podcast Patreon at patreon.com slash 
Jetpack 1917. Here, Kaha comrades, keep the fire burning.